0: I'd like to begin uh, this time before we look at the scriptures by inviting you um, into kind of uh, an, an exercise for a minute, and and I promise you when I do this, I'm not going to get you to, I'm going to ask you to think about something, but I'm not going to get you to share it. I'm not going to get you to talk about it. This is just for you, but I think it's going to help us to root and ground us in our scripture today, and in our lesson for today. And the exercise that I'd like us to do for just a couple of seconds. As I'd like for you on your own in silence to think about a moment or moments in your life where you have experienced joy. A moment or moments where you have experienced joy. We don't get tons and tons of those in our life. I'm not talking about like a good day. Those are nice. I'm talking about joy. Where were you? Who was with you? What were the circumstances? As you're thinking about that, I've thinking about it in your own life, and I want you to see it and picture it and hold on to it. I've had a chance to ask a number of people about this this week, because we've lit the candle of joy today, and wanting to get at what is, what is the foundation of joy? What, is, what does it mean to be people who experience joy? How do we do that? And so I've asked people on staff, asked people in conversations, asked people at a Bible study I lead, and I want to share with you some of their reflections, and even though the circumstances will be different, I wonder if we're going to start noticing or seeing some patterns in what they shared that might overlap with your own experience of joy. For instance, I had one individual who said that when they experienced joy, when they think about that, it was the moment when they were reunited with a family member who they love for the first time after COVID. That they had been separated for so long and they said they knew they were excited, but when they saw each other embrace and embrace, it almost surprised them at the emotions that poured forward But they said that was joy. I wonder if there are any overlaps in your own experience of joy with what she experienced. Or maybe someone else uh, who this week said that they experienced joy when they attended and got to be a part of the wedding of their child. They said that, as anyone knows who's a parent, there are a lot of ups and there are a lot of downs. And they said with this child there were a lot of ups and there were a lot of downs. But when they saw them there and saw the person that they were and saw the person that they were marrying, they said, these two are good and are going to be good in this world. And they said, looking at that moment was a moment of joy. Someone else who immediately said, it was after years of infertility when I found out that I was pregnant and Joy bubbled out from me. Or one final one of an individual who said that their first thought at joy was the day of their father's memorial service. I said, because that day I realized that faith was actually real, that he believed, and so did I that this was not the end, but that this was the beginning, that his life had been indeed swallowed up by greater life. And when I was there and that faith was real and I saw those who gathered, knowing my dad for years, and saw how he had impacted so many different lives, realizing a legacy of purpose that was passed on to me, he said, right there in the midst of my dad's memorial service, seeing that legacy, that was joy. How about for you? What came to mind? What comes to mind? Because I think if we could start seeing the overlapping parts of what joy is about, we might better position ourselves to receive it. Like the amazing part about joy is that we have to look back, many of us, and, and search. Maybe some of us have to look a long way back to figure out where were those moments where we really felt joy in our lives. But one of the amazing parts about joy is I don't know anybody that sits there and says, yeah, I don't really want that. Everybody wants it. Everybody, if you said, do you want more joy in your life? Everyone I know would be like, yes, yes, I want more joy in my life. Do you want this candle to burn more brightly for you every day? Yes, I want that. I don't know anyone who's like, no, I'll just take okay. No, I just would like, I'd like a little more down days. No, no, if given the chance, everybody I know would say, I I would like more of that. And so maybe if we could start seeing the overlapping pieces of what makes moments of joy happen, we might start becoming people that experience joy more and more often and that joy would flow from us to those around us where we live, work, and play. And I wonder how aligned your life is and how you live it on a daily basis with what it means to be a person of joy. Because as we read the scripture passage, I want to I plant a seed here that every story of joy I know of, every example that I almost imagine you've thought of in your head, involves you being a part of a story that's bigger than yourself. I don't know any moments of joy that were, I had this very self-centered goal and I worked at it and I achieved it and so I win and I'm a big deal. That's not joy. It's not bad, well, it can be bad. But joy is when you are caught in a story that is bigger than just yourself. Do you align your daily life to be a part of joy? We see this theme in Scripture over and over and over again, and we see it in our lectionary text that we're going to be looking at today, this third Sunday of Advent, as we read from the book of Isaiah, writing 700 years before the events of the manger. (coughs) Chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, and I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the nations, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we worship you today that we would hear your gospel your good news and it would change us forever we pray this in the name of jesus amen so again what i think you see in all of these examples of joy what i imagine you can think of in your own life i think what gets to the heart and the foundation of what it means to experience joy is that when we are people who receive joy we are always a part of something bigger than just ourselves We are part of something larger than us being the center of creation that life revolves around, which is often our default to being. And we see this throughout Scripture, and we see this here in Isaiah. Now, what I want us to do to see how Isaiah describes that we can be people of joy caught in a story bigger than ourselves is I want us to see that this passage is really almost in in two halves. There are almost two different ways that Isaiah talks about being people of joy, being a part of something bigger than ourselves. The first half is this. It's in verses 2 and 3. And Isaiah really in these verses gives us a celebration of salvation. He sits there and says that we are to sing praises to God, he says. Sing praises to the Lord, for we have been saved, for he is our salvation. This wonderful line that he says that we are to drink from the waters of the well of salvation. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that imagery amazing? He said, when you think about your salvation, you should erupt with joy because salvation is a story that's bigger than just you. Now, what is salvation? Salvation is this sense that here is God and the Holy One of Israel, God, uh, the, the, the holy and pure God, and the creator, and that we are the creation. And that there is a brokenness in us. And the question of how we are saved, how salvation happens, is how this gap between the creator and the creation is bridged. And there might be people in culture who sit there and go, oh, well, I just, God just loves everybody, everybody. And so everybody's just kind of a part of everything. And God doesn't judge. And, and, and if you think about that for more than 17 seconds, you will realize that that is not a God worth worshiping. It, it, it's a great bumper sticker that doesn't hold water if you take it seriously. On the other hand, then you have to get to as like, well then that's bridge because you know, of the things that I gotta do and I gotta be good and the good people sorta of go one place and the bad people go somewhere else and then you have to sit in the really uncomfortable question of well then how good is good enough? How good do you have to be? Like what does it really mean to be good and how do you define that? This is the work that you've gotta do and that too, if you think about for more than 20 seconds, you will sit in a very uncomfortable place. What we believe, what Isaiah is prophesying about here, is that salvation is a story that's bigger than what you do. It is a celebration of what God has done. Isaiah is prophesying about the one who says that the way that we live lives of celebrating and praising and worshiping God is to reflect on how he has saved us. There's a way, there's a quote, and I've used it, I know, once before, but I love this quote, and it says that, that worship, living a life of celebrating and praising God, that worship is like laughter. You don't just laugh. You laugh in seeing or hearing something funny. Laughter is a response. Worship is like laughter. Worship is a response. It's not something that we just worship, we just praise, It's a response to something. And what we're responding to is the God who says, I see you, I see all that goes on in your life, I see what goes on in your heart, I see what goes on in the world, I see injustice, I see what's taking place, and my love and my grace is so amazing that it covers that gap. That when we confess, one way to refer to, to, to what Jill led us in today is a prayer of confession. We weren't sitting there going, there might be a few of you that need to do this, we'll wait while the rest of you confess. No, what we're saying is all of us have got to do this. If all of us are being honest, this is something we've got to do. And then the amazing declaration that comes that God says, you are forgiven. It's, it's the most amazing news. We praise. And I, I know we're Presbyterians, but we can get excited about this, guys. <laughs> Like, it's the greatest news in the world. It changes everything. When God looks at it, we don't go, well, we'll have a committee study that. No! You're forgiven. You are cleansed. You are set free. You are saved. Salvation, Isaiah says, when you reflect on it, that yes, one way to say is we have the prayer of confession. We could rename that to this is the time where we draw and drink from the waters of the well of salvation. We confess our brokenness and the brokenness of the world and hear God's graceful story whispered over us again. It's the greatest news in the world. At least I think so. Thank you. Golly. Where were you? I was waiting for you. Thank you. I took my best shot at that. I'm like, surely we're gonna get a response today. Mmm, like, we'll have a task force. Look at that. That's. Uh, he seems very excited up there. Um, not very. Mm. I get this a lot. Of people like, you seem very Baptisty. Um, I'm sorry. I just take that as a compliment now. I'm like, I'm excited about Jesus. Yep, I, I sure am. Sure, I'm am excited about what he's done in my life. The second half. Of this passage, Isaiah says, if we celebrate salvation, number two is that we're called. And that's a part of joy as well. Joy's not just celebrating. Salvation's a story bigger than you. You're swept up in it. But also, in the second half, what we see is that you're called. You're called to go and tell of this story to other people, to sing it to the nations, to sing it to other people, to go and let other people know how loved they are by God, that your life is about more than just having a job and making money and being successful and, and being a really nice person. That your life has an eternal purpose to be one that witnesses to this love, witnesses to the goodness of God. There is a purpose and a reason you're here. Some of you have heard me say before, that's C.S. Lewis' definition of joy. C.S. Lewis says that the definition of joy is the presence of purpose. Isaiah is saying the same thing. You have a call. you think about it, most studies show that what people want for their children is they say, Oh, I just want my kids to be happy. That's what I want. Just want my kids to be happy. I'm a fan of happiness. I have two children. I want my children to be happy too. But is that really the best we could want for them? Because there are going to be moments in life. happiness is dependent upon circumstances, C.S. Lewis says. There are going to be moments where your children aren't happy. There are going to be moments where they're sad. There are going to be moments where life is hard. What C.S. Lewis says is that we should want them to have joy, which is purpose. And purpose and joy can exist even in the midst of difficulty and hardship, can't they? Where was the moment of joy? My father's memorial service. I bet if I had asked, what's the happiest time? That wasn't it. But the legacy that he had was passed on to me of what a life of purpose of connecting with other people can look like. That was joy, the presence of purpose. There's a reason you are here. So the first part, Isaiah says, we celebrate salvation. We celebrate that we're saved. We celebrate God's love. And in the second place, what we say is we get to, as Brian Wallace says, now become co-laborers with God. In telling through word and deed of the goodness of God's love. of How loved this world is. What an amazing thing. Again, you're part of something bigger than yourself. And Isaiah keeps returning to this word. Joy. Joy. So as we close, what I want us to think about just for a second is how do we tap into that kind of joy? How do we on a daily basis become a part of a story bigger than just us? Because most of us wake up thinking about our adulting, right? This is what I got to do today. This is my checklist. These are what I'm going to go do. This is my goals. This is what's going to happen. And I wonder if the ones that rob us of joy more than any others are our own selves, are actually our own goals at times, are actually our own sense of purpose. What would it mean to wake up and how would we get to a place where we wake up every day saying, Lord, I'd like to be a part of a story that you are writing in the world. How do I do that today? To illustrate one way of how this can happen, I want to tell you a story. It's a story of, I think it was a 13th birthday that I got to go to. And it was a story where I think about a face at that story and it was a face that I would say was a face of joy. Now, a 13-year-old birthday party is kind of an event. You're kind of at the edge of where you're not like young kids anymore, uh, and you're trying to figure out that cool thing when you're a 13-year-old boy, like of how that works. And the birthday party was for a friend of mine named Greg. And Greg was a, a pretty popular guy, and so he had a big birthday party, but he invited different people from different parts of his life that came together, but we didn't know each other. So for instance, Greg was in my school. So I knew Greg from school and I was there and there were a number of people from school and we kind of hung out in one group and we eyed up the other groups that were there that we didn't know because we were 13 and we were tough and we we're showing how tough we were. Uh, one of the other groups was from his church. They didn't seem very tough, uh, but that were there, but he had friends from his church that were there. He had friends from his neighborhood. He had friends from his baseball team and these different groups sort of like hung out together and, 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 and like played basketball against each other. So I won, uh, which was great. I actually didn't, but I felt like I did. And, um, you know, and, and, but we just kind of, you did what 13-year-olds boys do, which is you're very worried about it. You're, you're convinced everyone there is looking at you. And so you're kind of trying to present in a way. I think we're also 13 because then we had the, the after the, the basketball and the games, we had uh, the, the, the cake and the singing, which is a really awkward time for a group of 13-year-old boys, right? Because you're cool. And so you're, you don't want to sing. That's not cool. Or tough. So I remember being that moment where you're kind of like, Happy birthday to you. <laughs> I want some cake and I have to be here, but I want everyone to know I'm not singing <laughs> because cool kids don't sing like me. And then we ate cake. Now we're all there eating cake, and then it came time for presents. I was looking around going, man, are a lot of pre- are a lot of people. Everybody brought presents. Craig's a lucky guy, man. Um, But one of the guys in the group that was there was a guy named Simon. And Simon uh, was in the group of the neighborhood kids who were there. Simon knew Greg from baseball. Now, I had never met Simon before. I knew of Simon. Because Simon, a few weeks before, his house had caught fire. And when you're a 13-year-old boy, you, like, rumors like, I mean, stories like that spread very quickly. Uh, and so Simon, and his, the good news was his family was okay, their house was insured, but the house was, was destroyed, and the part of the house that was particularly, completely destroyed was Simon's room. Everything that he had. So Simon was there, and I remember as we drove there, we actually passed the house and saw it. I'd never seen a house like that before, because the reconstruction hadn't started yet. In the midst of... Uh, us gathering and presents being given, Greg stopped before opening the first present and invited Simon to come up with him and said, Simon's house caught fire and Simon's room was destroyed and everything that he has was destroyed, and um, I want Simon to open the presents because all of these gifts are going to be for him. And I remember Simon's face of looking at his parents to see if that was okay, of looking at Greg to see if it was a joke, of looking at Greg's parents to see if it was okay. I remember also being 13 because the immature thought part of me was like, "Gosh, Simon's the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> he gets all of these gifts and he gets his own birthday presents. That would be awesome. I remember Simon's face as he kept opening different gifts and seeing what was there and uh, something new that he hadn't had before and a couple of things that he had had before, and the excitement and the surprise. But that wasn't the look of joy. The look of joy that I remember was turning to the one who had stepped to the side, Greg, as Greg watched Simon's delight at opening these gifts. And the smile on his face was one that I didn't have a word for in the moment, but I think the word I would say was joy. Because Greg became a part of something bigger than himself. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying to, isn't it? What Isaiah is prophesying about, what lies at the heart of the Messiah, what lies at the heart of the Christmas story itself is a God who holds nothing back, who is extravagantly generous in giving his most precious, his son, into the world to radiate love. And that is this one comes into the world and lives into a story that is bigger than just his own well-being. And on the cross, salvation becomes possible. Jesus himself becomes part of a story that is bigger than just himself that all of us are invited into. And I wonder what it might mean. I wonder what it might mean. Not that you and I can control joy, but if we might posture ourselves to receive joy better by becoming a part of a bigger story is if we took upon ourselves the practice every day of extravagant generosity. What would it mean this day? What would it mean this week with all that you have, with all that God's given you? And I'm not going to, there's no fundraising here. What would it mean for you to be generous this week? Extravagantly generous with what God has given you. What would it mean to be generous with your time with those around you? What would it mean to be generous with your words? With those around us with whom we interact? What would it mean to be generous with your attitude towards others? As you go through this week, what would it mean for you to be generous with the way you treat other people? John Ortberg says that when we are young, the regrets we have are the things that we do that we know we shouldn't. I'm trying to lose weight and I eat chocolate cake and I regret it. He says the regrets as you get older that you haunt you are the opportunities that you should have taken that you didn't. The word of love you should have spoken, the generosity that you should have shown, the forgiveness that you should have offered that you didn't. What would it mean this week to step into generosity and use that as a foothold to become a part of a story bigger than yourself? Imagine, imagine the joy we would have next week when we walk through those doors. Oh, what joy we would know. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, may your joy made complete in Jesus be made complete in us. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.